Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church. If you're a visitor, uh, especially if it's your first time, just want to take a second and welcome you. Thank you that you're here. We're glad you've joined with us. Maybe you're a Christian visiting and looking for a church. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're exploring the things of the Christian faith, wondering uh, what the Christian gospel is and what Christians believe. If that's you, also want you to know we're glad you're here. This is a good and safe place for you to do that. We'd love to follow up with you and even talk with you about what we believe and, uh, and the goodness of Christ our Savior. Also, uh, it's, this is uh, the, you know, seven of the last eight weeks I have not been in the pulpit. Uh, other pastors of our church have been preaching, and I just want to say to those brothers formally thank you for serving us so well. Uh, my soul has been encouraged and enriched and built up in the Word. Uh, it feels overwhelming and a little bit embarrassing uh, how many uh, kind of faithful expositors and teachers of the Word God has given to this church. And so I'm grateful uh, just to be a Christian here. Uh, to learn under God's word. And so to the brothers who labored so faithfully, thank you uh, for that. But also to everyone else, I've been out for seven of eight weeks. So I'm excited to be here. <clears throat> so buckle up. <clears throat> now, I am, I'm excited to jump back into Matthew. And I figured maybe a fitting way to begin is just to announce it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. So said the poets, referred to as R.E.M. <laughs> Late 80s and early 90s song apparently saw an 184% increase of internet downloads and a 48% increase of streaming during March of 2020 when that animal COVID <laughs> hit. So I thought, well, that's not going to be relevant to today's culture, but because of COVID, apparently that song is still relevant. Music, movies, literature often capitalize on humanity's intrigue about the last days, about the apocalypse, about the end. As we jump back into Matthew's gospel, we do so in chapters 24 and 25, commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, the fifth and final discourse of Jesus in Matthew's gospel account. So the entire account of Matthew is built around these five discourses of Jesus. And this last discourse is about, indeed, the last things, the last days the parousia, if you will, uh, the end, the second coming of Christ. And Jesus is answering these questions because the disciples ask a couple of questions, or he's answering and talking about this specifically in this discourse because they ask him a couple of questions. Now, some of you I know at this point are like, oh man, now it's time to dust off the end time charts, get them out and go back after it. Now, listen, before you do that, just let me give a few words of pastoral encouragement and even how we're gonna approach this together. You know, one of the things when you're preparing to preach and you, you think, man, I want to go listen to a lot of my favorite pastors and preachers who I admire, who are heroes. I want to hear how they did it and make sure I do this faithfully. And then you go researching and you can't find any. Then you're like, wait a minute, why did none of them preach on this? And then you start reading about the complexities of it. And then you start asking the question, why am I preaching on this? <laughs> Uh, and so I do want to give a few pastoral warnings about uh, these chapters and, and uh, the complexities of the content therein and even how we're going to approach it together. First, just kind of pastoral warning is faithful Christians who believe wholeheartedly in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture have landed on different parts when it comes to matters of the end times or the last days or eschatology, which just means the study of the end times. This is true because of how you put together passages in Daniel and in Matthew and in 2 Thessalonians and the apocalyptic passages in Revelation. When you bring all these together, Christians historically have had different views on how it all comes together and what we learn and believe about the end. And particularly Revelation chapter 20, which talks about the millennium. Christians throughout uh, historic Orthodox Christianity have believed uh, in different beliefs on the millennium. 
I'm just going to summarize them for you. I'm not even going to tell you what they believe. I'm just going to give you the titles for those who are interested. Historic premillennialism is one belief. Then there's a dispensational premillennialism. And then amillennialism. And then a postmillennialism. Now, as faithful Christians, I want you to know that all of us are pro-millennialism. <laughs> We're all for it. And we all believe in pan-millennialism. We believe it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> so I'm sorry for uh, a little bit of a cheesy theological dad joke to begin. But I do want you to know that there are Christians throughout history have differed on how they put all of this together. So I want to think about eschatology. I want to get into this. But before we do, I want you to understand these are tertiary matters. Faithful Christians who believe in the authority of Scripture disagree with one another, can be in the same fellowship in a local church and not divide and fight one another. So even as we think and talk about this, we're going to go through, we're going to teach the text. But I want to do so the best I can in such a way that helps every believer here. And I want to primarily major on that which all Christians, no matter where you land on some of that, believe. Because what we want to do as we jump into this is think about, no, no, what does historic Christianity teach? And then in classrooms and debates and conversations, we can get together and debate some of the details. But we want to, as we get into the text, we want to make sure this is helpful to everyone in our church to edify and to build us up and to make us faithful in Christ. I even believe that's the primary point of the chapters, as you'll see, is that Jesus, how he responds and addresses the end times, primarily his emphasis is that you'd be faithful in light of what he teaches. So I want to make sure that we do that. But I'd also want to read at the beginning that even if we disagree on certain details and matters, we can all affirm that which is orthodox, which we have in our membership class. All Christians, orthodox Christians, could affirm the following belief. Jesus Christ will return. God will bring the world to its appropriate end in his own time and in his own way. At that time, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. Christ will judge both the saved and unsaved. Those who have trusted Christ will receive a glorified body and dwell forever with the Lord. Those who have not trusted in Christ will spend eternity in hell, the place of everlasting punishment. So not, no matter where you land on the deta details of your belief, which camp you land on, Orthodox Christianity could say amen to that statement. Or if you're in the room and you're like, I don't really understand anything you've said to this point. Amen, that's fine. That paragraph is important. That's what Christians believe, uh, no matter how we talk about the details. But as we jump through these couple chapters, what I want to do is think about how is this text helpful to the, to the stay-at-home mom? How is it helpful to the college student? Or to the brand-new Christian who's like, I don't know anything about anything. Or to all the young families that we have in the room. Even to the children in the room, what must we all believe in about the end times, about the last things that we might be faithful to Christ in the here and now? Eschatology matters. What we believe about the end matters. It should impact how we live day-to-day, -day, not merely arm us for theological debate. And so my hope is that you'd see the major points and applications that all of us agree on that would impact your mornings, your nine to five, and your evenings. That it would change and you would marinate and think on these things as you live your day-to-day -day life, not just feel like I got some tools equipped to go debate someone theologically, though there's good room for that. I'm not saying that's bad. We ought to have good theological debate. My aim in, in instructing and teaching is that this would be helpful to you in your day-to-day -to, -day, to help you have right expectations. Now, as every husband knows or every young husband will soon find out expectations are important. <clears throat> One of the places of most tension in my 16 years of marriage happens when I fail to communicate to my bride and to give some general expectations. I mean, generally speaking, I'm kind of a go with the flow kind of guy. So that might mean 
Uh, not as bad today as I used to be uh, because marriage has taught me and conflict has taught me and we've got through them. But I'm a go with the flow kind of guy. So maybe at 11.57, I'll shoot a text and say, hey, by the way, I'm coming home for lunch and I'll be there in three minutes. And, uh, you know, or I say, hey, I get home from work at the end of the day. I say, by the way, I invited some people over for dinner tonight. That's not, I would not, uh, young husbands, I would not advise you to do that. <clears throat> that's, that's a good way to have a conflict. And my wife, listen, my wife's not high maintenance. She just wants general expectations. Like, hey, communicate to me where we're going, what we're doing, that I'm able to prepare and do uh, what I need to be doing uh, to be faithful and to be present. Well, similarly, when we come to this text, particularly where we look at today, the Lord Jesus gives us some general expectations. Christ himself is the perfect bridegroom who tells his people, the bride, the church, here are some general expectations for you about what to expect and how to live in this broken world between the times headed towards the end of days. So in today's text, uh, in this topic of last things, Jesus gives his disciples basic expectations about how, how things will go. The main point that we see is he, he calls us to live in light of his return by having right expectations about the future. If you want a hook to kind of hold it together, there's no need to panic, but we must pay attention. There's no need to panic, but we must pay attention. Let's pray and ask for God's help, and we'll get into the text. Father, we come to you through Christ, our resurrected, reigning, and sure to return, Lord. Asking by the power of your spirit, guide us into truth. Give us right expectations about what life lo looks like here and now, waiting for there and then. We pray for your glory and the eternal joy and help of all here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Kind of two points today. First, setting up the context. The second one, we'll have four subpoints that we spend most of our time on. Uh, but first, just notice uh, in the opening verses, Jesus promises the destruction of the temple. So look again at chapter 24, verse 1. Verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago when we preached uh, chapter 23, Jesus uh, announced seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, false leaders and teachers in Jerusalem. And then if you just let your eyes skim up to the end of chapter 23, he laments what's going on in Jerusalem. We read in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so now Jesus is walking away from Jerusalem after lamenting and saying, This is going to be left desolate. So he, he's demonstrating judgment. You've rejected me. I'm now walking away. I'm removing my presence, the presence of God from Jerusalem, and it's going to be left desolate. He's been rejected by his own people. He soon will be crucified. And so his disciples come and kind of point out to him the, the buildings of the temple. So they surely had that statement about it being desolate in the back of their minds. They followed their, their master to Jerusalem. Now they're walking out and they're thinking about the magnitude and beauty of the temple. And so well, Jerusalem's going to be desolate? Like, like the temple? Now you need to understand the temple uh, at, at this point was one of the, the world's great wonders. Herod the Great began the temple back in about 20 B.C. It survives until 70 A.D. when the Romans ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But at this point, in this moment, it had been under construction for about half a century, and apparently it was breathtaking. So, so literally, this is one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful building on the planet at the time. And Jesus is saying, desolate, it's going to be left desolate. First century Jewish historian Josephus paints a vivid picture of the beauty of the temple, saying this being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, 
The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. This temple is massive, and it is beautiful. It's the pride of Jerusalem. This is where they worship. This is where they're assuming the presence of God. Jesus is walking away and saying it's going to be desolate. And it's almost like the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, like that, the temple? So there's a bit of hesitation and question like, no, no, wait a minute. This is the centrality of all who we are, have known and, and of our religion. What do you mean desolate? And we see in verse 2, Jesus answers. You see all these speaking of those stones, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. We see with our Lord, as usual throughout Matthew, he's much more concerned with the heart of worshipers than he is with the building they worship in. He's just turned over tables in the temple because the religious leaders had become more concerned about their power and their platform and were neglecting the whole point of all of the building and of the temple, which namely was the worship of God. He was especially upset with them. They were making money off the nations when they were supposed to be introducing the nations to God. Instead, they had turned religion into a profit, into a business, and in a way to make money. He's already been upset with them, and therefore he says, this temple will be destroyed. Now we know as the rest of the New Testament unfolds that Jesus indeed is building a new temple, not made up of physical stones, but instead made up of his people. Jesus, as Paul records, is the cornerstone of a new temple that will never be destroyed. The temple of God is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not a place, but it's a people. It's those whom God saves by his grace through faith and reconciles them into his body where his presence now by his spirit dwells with them. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outsiders, those who've come to faith in Christ. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone of the true temple of the church. Buildings come and go. Nations come and go. Local churches like this one come and go. But the universal church, the church of Jesus Christ, is forever. The church made up of the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation is forever. Remember, he, he promises us forever. He promised it to Peter, even when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What was his response back in chapter 16 to Peter? I tell you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter heard this, and then later in his epistle, he wrote, as you come to him, a living stone rejected my men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells his disciples, look, God's judgment is coming down on Jerusalem and that glorious temple because they've rejected Christ, the cornerstone. They at this point still don't realize he's building a new temple, not made of brick and mortar, but made of people saved by grace called the church. And so the disciples are shocked by this and come to ask more questions. Now, before we move on and look at their questions and see Christ's answer, let, let us acknowledge that following Jesus often means following him with our questions. God's ways are not your ways. God's ways are not my ways. Often following Jesus means I've got a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. 
And so we have to keep following him to find the answers he has for us. We need to acknowledge this. Sometimes his word catches you off guard and you got to keep following him for more answers. Even remember the series title in Matthew that we're studying together, Authentically Christian, Following King Jesus Together. Christianity is not about praying a prayer to know you're going to heaven and then going back to your normal life. Now, it is true we must confess our faith. It is true that if we confess our faith and trust in Christ, we are going to heaven if he's saved us. That's, that's true. But that's the beginning of our relationship with God, not the end. <laughs> that's the beginning of following him, not the end of following him. And we follow him by his spirit through his word together with his church. That's what it looks like to be built and joined together into this temple where his spirit dwells. God, I've got all kinds of questions. God's like, bet it up. Come to my word. I got all kinds of answers. <laughs> and I've given you my spirit to guide you to truth. My word is truth. And I've given you my church to answer and help you when you can't figure out what's going on. Following Jesus means bringing your questions to the scriptures by the spirit with the church together. This is what we do as Christians. The Spirit of God guides you into the Word of God with the people of God. It's what it looks like to follow King Jesus. We do that together. And sometimes the answers he gives are just not quite the answer you are, you are, you are expecting. That's just regular with Jesus. So again, if you want to make God in your own image, then he always answers the way you think he should. If you're following the God of the Bible, it's, sometimes it's like, whew, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> Right, And that's what happens with the disciples even here. Secondly, Jesus gives his disciples four expectations. So the disciples are curious and ask about the temple's destruction that he references. And they ask about his return. Now again, there's some, some debates in different camps are going to see different things going on here. But I think there's clearly two different questions that we see in the text. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, what he's just talked about, destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus will spend the rest of chapter 24 and 25 answering these questions in this fifth and final discourse. But before he gets into some of the specifics, again, he gives us general expectations. And in many ways in today's text, he's warning against premature expectations of the end times, if you will. If you will. And he's doing so to help his disciples not panic. So again, pay attention, but don't panic. There's no need to, pay, to panic, but you need to pay attention. Why? What will tempt us to panic? What about the end times? What about the age these disciples were living in and by application, how we're living? What things will tempt us to panic in, in, in this life? N number one, people will try to lead you astray. So he says, look, you'll be tempted to panic because people will try to lead you astray. Look at verse four. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray. Let your eyes skim down to chapter 24, verse 23 and 25. Similarly, he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus warns his disciples that false religious leaders, not altogether different from those he just pronounced all the woes against in chapter 23, will rise up and seek to lead astray even the followers of Christ. So how can they recognize? How can, they, how can followers of Jesus recognize false leaders, false prophets, false Christ? How can they resist being led astray by those who perform great signs and wonders? So if there's these teachers who are saying they are somebody, and there's these great signs and wonders, like how can you recognize the true one from the false one? Well, by listening to the words Jesus is teaching even now. Jesus is forewarning them to forearm them as Spurgeon said. 
He's forewarning to forearm. You need to know and understand and study and hear what I'm saying so that you know when other people come say different things, you'll recognize that's not what I said. How do you recognize a counterfeit? How do you spot a fake? By being super familiar with the authentic. How do you know when something's whack and off? By being the expert in that which is true and right. So Jesus is like, no, no, listen to my words, hear my words, understand what I'm saying so that these false Christs and these false teachers do not deceive you. Look at down to verse 35. This is what he's saying. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So do not be led astray by the words of false teachers by knowing the word of our teacher, the Christ. The Apostle Paul warns and applies exactly what Christ is saying here. So listen to the, the warning in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Paul says, listen, people got itching ears. They want to do what they want to do, and they don't really care if God doesn't like it. They want to find teachers that will say God does like it so they can keep doing it. So that's what these false teachers are. So Paul warns that's going to happen. Why? And what's the application? What do we do? Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, uh, complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we know false teachers and we are not led astray by false teachers because we know the true teacher. We know false words, only we can recognize them when we know the true word. And so that's the reason in this pulpit and anything we do at King's Cross, we want to teach Bible. Like you don't need our opinions. You need Bible. You need the word of Christ, not the word of Clint, not the word of BT, not the word of any. No, you need the word of God, which is why we must preach the word so we can understand and recognize when false teachers are teaching false things. So Jesus' first response to the question about the end is to warn his disciples to avoid being deceived by false Christ and to do that by trusting in his authoritative word. Friends, you cannot trust and obey his authoritative word unless you know what it says. You've got to be in your Bible. You don't need to just believe it because somebody said it up here. You need to be in the text. You need to be listening with an open Bible, seeing, is this what it says? Is this what the text says? You've got to know your word. You cannot protect yourself from being deceived by those who perform amazing things unless you know the word. This is the great danger of so many false teachers. They often have massive platforms. They lead massive organizations and do really good things, but they're full of half-truths, giving you just enough Bible and Bible-sounding talk to cover up their whackness. But this is not new. Satan has always attacked the word of God. He did it with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's not what God said. He did it all the way. This is what Paul said to us. He warns us. 2 Corinthians 11. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants, that is Satan's, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Friend, Christian friend, when you stand before Christ on judgment day, you will stand before the Christ of the Bible, not the Christ of the Bible belt. You will stand before the Christ of Scripture, not the Christ of culture. You're going to account to God as he's revealed himself in the text. You must know the word. Therefore, follow him by his spirit according to his word together with his church. Non-Christian friends, please, 
Do not make your conclusions about Christianity based on the Christ of culture, be it of progressive culture or Bible Belt culture. Make your conclusions about Christianity based on the Christ of Scripture. Deal with Jesus and make your conclusions. When you stand before him on judgment day, you will stand before Christ as he's been revealed in his word. Expectation number one about life now until Christ returns, people will try to lead you astray. Therefore, know the Christ of the Bible. Expectation number two, why you will, you'll be tempted to panic. You will be tempted to panic. <laughs> You're going to be. You should expect. The right expectation is I'm going to be tempted to panic in this world. And Jesus gives us at least three reasons. Because the world is broken, because persecution is coming, and because people will fall away. And that's going to tempt you to panic. So first, notice the, the world is broken. Verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. So again, notice he's like, don't panic. I'm preparing you. I'm telling you what to expect. You're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, every bit of this has been generally true since and even before Jesus uttered these words, because the world is broken. Genesis 3 happened. <laughs> Our parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, and there were cosmic repercussions that, of breaking that relationship with God. If you don't believe me, just scroll through your social media feed. Just go look on any news website, and you're going to see all of these things. You're going to see Russia and Ukraine. You're going to see horrific destruction from fires in Hawaii, at least Hawaii, at least 93 dead. You're going to see uh, Haiti can just never recover, can just never respond. You're going to see constant turmoil in the Middle East. And you can go back to the annals of history and find wars and rumors of wars and nations fighting nations and famines and earthquakes in various places. Like everything Jesus said was spot on. Open your eyes. You can see it everywhere. Romans chapter 8 captures the emotion of it all. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. So Jesus warns his disciples they'll be tempted to panic because the world is broken. But they shouldn't panic. The broken world should not cause us to panic and jump to apocalyptic conclusions. So when COVID comes on, again, it's the end of the world. You know it shouldn't be the top song on your playlist. <laughs> like, you know, this is what we expect in a broken world. That doesn't mean we take it lightly or tritely. We just understand, no, this is exactly what we expect. We're not caught off guard by the brokenness of the world. The second reason we're tempted to panic is because of personal persecution. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Now, these disciples with Jesus are in a private meeting, so this is not a large crowd. And I want you to imagine and feel that, that moment when he says, hey, guys, listen, no, 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 don't panic. The world's broken. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. The end's not yet come. That's, like, that's life in a broken world. And also, people are going to deliver you up, kill you for the sake of my name. Don't panic. <laughs> Whew. All right. <laughs> like, keep going, right? But just imagine the weight of that moment. And Jesus wasn't just saying this to say it. Friend, it happened. According to biblical data and then combined with church history, 
The apostle Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord, and the Romans obliged. Andrew was scourged and then tied rather than nailed to a cross so he would suffer longer. And in those two, it took him two days to die. And in those two days, history records, he was preaching the gospel to those passing by. James chapter 12, or Acts chapter 12 says that James was killed with a sword. Church history records he led a guard to Christ and the two of them were beheaded. John was cast away on an island to Patmos. Philip was crucified after being imprisoned in Asia as a missionary. For Bartholomew, there's one account that says he was beaten and crucified. Another one, he was skinned alive and beheaded. We don't know which one is true. Thomas pierced with a spear for preaching the gospel. Matthew was reportedly stabbed in the back as a missionary. James, at 94 years old, was beaten, stoned, and then killed by being hit in the head with a club. Thaddeus and Simon both were crucified. Jesus told these men they should expect to suffer and die for his namesake, and they did. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us now? Because it was a private meeting with these disciples that had a particular and specific application for them. But what does it mean for us now as the people of God? It means we should not be, expect to be loved by all people. No matter how gracious and kind we are with the gospel message, there will be people who hate us because of the gospel. This then was not avoidable. Today it is not avoidable. And it's not new. We should expect that some will hate the gospel message and therefore hate us. We should remember our brothers and sisters who are persecuted throughout the world. Even our own sister from this church who's going to the Middle East and is serving in a place that is dangerous. We should be praying. We should remember this world is not our home. This is not our best life now. It's, it's just not. Like we're, we're in a dark world. We're in a broken world. But we have a redeemer and a hope who's with us. But we should expect people will not like us. Now, we don't go looking for suffering or persecution. Sometimes we even flee from it. Jesus is going to advise these disciples to do that down in chapter 24, verse 15 to 18. But we understand in our context, even if socially, we expect what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.12 to be true. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. So don't panic, but pay attention. Expect a broken world. Expect personal persecution. And then one more reason that the disciples would be tempted to panic. Because people will fall away. Look at verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus tells this close band of disciples that many will fall away. Many will betray one another in this camp. Many false prophets will grow up from inside and lead many astray. Judas sits among them, and he'll do it in just a matter of days. And because everything will be crazy, there'll be total lawlessness. The love of many will grow cold. And we learn and just see from this, increased lawlessness results in decreased affections for Jesus. As immorality goes up, expect affection for Jesus to go down. As passion for lawless immorality heats up, expect passion for Jesus to cool down. Do we not see this in so many ways in our day? Many whom you thought were Christians, as culture changes on moral issues, have changed with culture and no longer affirm Christian beliefs. Parents watching their children choose a sinful lifestyle and then changing their mind on what sin is and affirming that lifestyle. Now, don't get me wrong. We ought to love our children no matter their lifestyle. But love and unconditional affirmation are not the same thing. We love them. We love them unconditionally. We do not unconditionally affirm sinful choices. 
Are we not, so, are we not witnessing this in the so-called deconstruction movement? One of my heroes in the faith 20 years ago, teaching me all kinds of doctrine, went to the best of doctrinal schools, brilliant mind, all kinds of degrees, now denounced the faith and is working against the faith trying to deconvert other people. His love for Jesus has grown so stone cold. I saw uh, recently he cursed the Trinity online to prove a point that he doesn't think the Trinity exists. Paul picks up on this and told us to expect the same thing. 2 Timothy 3, understand this, in the last days, and again, Paul's writing in those days, talking about those days, up until these days, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people." So Jesus gives clear expectations. We should expect people to try to lead us astray. We should expect to be tempted to panic because we live in a broken world, personal persecution, and some will fall away. But he says, don't be alarmed. Whew, all right, Lord, am I missing something? Like that feels like a lot of reasons to be alarmed. But he says, don't be alarmed. Why? These circumstances seem to make us want to panic, but he says, don't panic. Why? Third expectation, he will keep you. You don't panic because he'll keep you. Look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. God promises his disciples will endure as much as we are meant to endure, but in the end, we will be saved. A broken world will not finally break us. Suffering does not mean he does not love us. Personal persecution will not thwart his purposes. They might cut off the heads of our brothers and sisters, but we have a God who can put them back on. So we're able to live in this broken world with these expectations, knowing our God will help us endure to the end. They might cancel us, but we know the God who died to make us acceptable. And we're accepted before God. Who cares who cancels us when God accepts us? False teachers ultimately will not deceive us. Others falling away doesn't mean the faithful will. Satan cannot pluck us out of his hands. We can get past anything we're going through by knowing where and better yet, who we're going to. So anything you're going through right now, you know, if I belong to him, but no, no, but you don't understand, pastor, I'm going through doubts. Okay, you're going through doubts. Your faith is not in you, your faith is in him. (laughs) He will make sure you endure, not you. Like, don't get it twisted. The pressure's not on you to endure, the pressure's on him to make sure you endure. And Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You will endure if you're in Christ. And so our peace and our comfort, the fact that we don't panic comes, we're paying attention, we understand right expectations, but our God has got us. He will sustain us. He will keep us until the end. But let us take heed to the warning if you endure. So I don't want to take the the bite out of the warning. If you don't endure, it means you weren't a Christian to begin with. You might have prayed a prayer. You might have went to church. You might have went to a camp. But if you don't endure, you reveal that you didn't know Christ. This is why we take church membership so seriously. You can deceive yourself. Well, how do you know if you deceive yourself? Well, because you got the word of God and the spirit of God with the people of God holding you accountable to make sure. And if you don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, they will excommunicate from the church. And even that itself is to wake you up so you know, I need to be saved so you get saved. (laughs) This is why membership matters. 
for endurance. It's our job to help one another get to glory. This life is hard. There are plenty of things that will tempt us to go astray. And God gives us his church. He's building his church, this temple that we're put together in this structure to hold us together to make us endure to the end because he's faithful to keep us to the end. You get around faithful brothers and sisters, they care so much more that you're ready for the return of Christ than you are if you're on a church roll. They just want to make sure you know him and you're ready for him. It's not how you start that's important. It's, it matters that you finish. And in all the pushback and all the fight and all the difficulties, our God will keep us. Reminded of the hymns, third and fourth stanzas of that great hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath, hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You know, one of the ways we endure is by knowing that if we knew everything God knows, if we saw everything he sees, if we had all the power that he has, we would govern our lives exactly the way he is. We would answer our prayers exactly how he answers our prayers. Sometimes God doesn't answer your prayer the way you want him to because he knows more than you and better than you, and he is better than you, and therefore what he's doing, if you knew all that he knew, if you had all the power that he had, you would answer the prayer the way he answered it. He'll get you through to the end. You will endure. This is why you need not panic. And lastly, the fourth expectation is for the gospel to advance through us. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You can take this one to the bank. Revelation 7 is going to happen. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to glory in the lamb who was slain. And he's going to use his church to make that happen. He's going to use the faithful proclamation of the gospel despite persecution, despite the brokenness of the world, despite the hatred you'll get. He's going to take this gospel. He's going to get it to the ends of the earth. And Revelation 7 is coming. This will happen. We can build our entire life and ministry as a church on that. The good news of Christ will get to the end of the earth. And it will get there through his church being faithful. And so what we see even about this is faithful eschatology should lead to bold and hopeful missiology. So right understanding of the end times should lead to bold and faithful mission right now in this time. Understanding, no, no, he's going to work it out in the end. And the way he's going to bring about the end is through the proclamation of the gospel. And we got to get after it. <laughs> we got to preach gospel. We got to plant churches. We got to send missionaries. Like this is what we're about as the people of God. And we know the end game, we win. And so therefore we, we pay attention, but we don't have to panic because we know the end of the story. Like, we've looked at the back of the manual. We know all the answers. <laughs> so we can take the quizzes. It's fun. Like, we know the answers. <laughs> I ain't I encouraging nobody to cheat. College students, they, I ain't saying y'all should cheat. But we know the end. Like, you're playing, it's like you're playing a game that you know the end, end is we win. So you got nothing to lose. Give it all you got. Oh, man, I threw an interception. That's fine. I know we win in the end. Let's get after it again. <laughs> like, this should embolden God's people. 
with the gospel to get it to the ends of the earth. Again, right understanding the last days fuels mission in our present days. Understanding where we're headed to emboldens us to invite any and everyone we can to join us on the way. We have a God, a Redeemer, who can save the worst of sinners and take them to an eternal joy. He saved us, didn't he? He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He's interceding for us. He's going to return for us, and he's using us to bring other people. This is incredible. It's the mission of the church. So we preach this gospel with boldness and confidence and gentleness and love, knowing our God is going to get a remnant for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we do all that we can to faithfully join him. So we don't prioritize end times charts, but unreached people group maps. That's what we're thinking about. We don't focus on when the when of the end, but the who of the end, our Savior and his people. That's why we prioritize church planting. That's why, Lord willing, Matt and Carly Speaks are going to go plant a church in High Point next September. Because there's, all, there's like 10% refugees from all over the world. We want to get gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's send them to plant a church. That's why Grant and Alexis are saying, hey, we want to plant a church in East Greensboro in an underserved community. Bet it up. Come serve. Let us figure it out. Let's help you plant. That's why Eric and Bree Pruitt are saying, hey, you know what? We think actually a few years from now we want to plant too. So let's start talking about that now. Why? Because we got to get gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's sad to send people out. That's fine. We're going to be together forever. <laughs> like we can send people out now. We'll be together forever with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he's going to use us in our going, in our coming. As much time as we get together to do it, great. As much time as we got to partner together, separate, great. In the end, we're all together worshiping the slain lamb. This is what we're living for. And that end emboldens our mission in the present because he guarantees it. So we are not people who talk like there's no hope. Even at funerals. Paul in 1 Thessalonians says, we're not like those who grieve with no hope. Even at funerals, we know, no, no, Christ defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated our sin. Death is not the end for us. Like, we know that. So then, therefore, we have hope even though it's most. So we grieve and we lament. Like, we keep it real. But keeping it real means we win in the end. <laughs> so we weep now, but joy comes in the morning. Like, we under, like, this is who we are as the people of God. We're optimistic realists and realistic optimists. Right? Like, we know the world's jacked up. We know there are people trying to lead us astray. We know persecution is coming our way. We know fake Christians will fall away and that will hurt. But we also know Christ will make us endure to the end and he'll get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're optimistic realists and realistic optimists. Why? Because the Son of God died. We're realistic. Optimists, because he rose again. <laughs> Like, we understand persecution is coming, but we understand we we're all raised in Christ. Optimistic realist. Death is real, so is resurrection. Therefore, we don't sell a flake, fluffy gospel that promises an evil, easy life. So, this is the, like, we don't tell people, like, man, like, God will make your life so much better here and now. Like, if you'll just please, like, we'll talk about hell later. No, no, no. Take up your cross. Come suffer with Christ and his people now so that you might have joy forever. We can't cover that up. We want the joy forever. And so we tell them, no, come follow the Christ of Scripture, not the Christ of some culture. We don't have a doom and gloom gospel. We have a resurrected, reigning, and returning Christ gospel. And therefore, we're realistic about the suffering and the life to come in this broken world. But we're realistic and optimistic about the resurrection to come. And by God's grace, we're saying, God, use us to go get as many as you would will. That on that day, we celebrate together and we look back and say, man, how God was so faithful. So that's part one. We got three more parts to come in a few weeks. Let's close in prayer.